One of the great truths of life is that you get out of something what you put into it. You know that, right? Your mom or your dad probably said that to you when you are a kid. You know, son, you know, daughter, what, what you get out of it is what you put into it. If you invest in something, there's some sort of return there that happens. And you've probably seen that proven to be true over and over in your adult life. If you invest in my, my fitness, I'm going to go to the gym. If you go one time a week, that's not, you're not going to get a lot out of that, right? It's what you put into it. If you go three, four, five, six times a week, now we're starting to see something happen. You're starting to see a change. And if you go to the gym and all you do is like hang out by the machines and talk to people, probably not much. You're not going to get a lot out of that investment of your time, right? You've seen that to be true with food. If you say, you know, I want to get in better shape. I want to eat right. And so I'm going to have salad one day a week. That's probably not going to do it, right? Just the, oh, that one time. And you feel real proud of yourself. Like, man, I wanted a burger, but I got the salad. You know, if you do that like once a week, just have the burger. Just stop. You know what I mean? Like, you got you to invest there. You got to really get after it. You, if you say, hey, man, no alcohol, no grains, no sugar, no dairy, you know, that kind of thing for, you know, the whole 30, like 30 days or 60 days or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop eating. Meat. Like, then you're going to see, because of the consistency over time, you're going to see some results. You're going to see a return on that investment. Same thing with our faith. If you say, I'm going to pray one time, that might not do much. But if you say, I want to build it into my rhythm, I'm going to pray every day at work at lunchtime. I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray when I get up in the morning. I'm going to pray right before I go to bed at night. I'm going to pray before every meal. If you start building it into the rhythm of your day, the consistency of that will bring a return over time. You're going to see a return on that investment. You're going to get out of it something when you put something into it. And so I want to talk today about the idea of going of going all in. What does it look like to, to sort of go all in on our faith? And last week, we started this series, ROI, and we talked about return on investment. And, and I said, I, I made this statement last week that there's really no greater investment you can make with your life than, than to invest in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to unpack all of that today, but we, if you missed it last week, go back and listen to our podcast on our website or go through our mobile app and, and listen to that um, and, and kind of track with that. But Jesus calls us to follow him. And I said, nothing will change your life more like doing that, like getting into a relationship with God because it affects everything that you do, your, your, your marriage or your dating or your, all, all relationships, your, your, uh, how you spend your money, like everything is affected by a relationship with God. And so he calls us to follow him. And today I want to talk about what it looks like to go all in on that idea, particularly around the concept of servanthood, where we serve or pour our lives into other people. If we serve other people, I truly believe it will build up our faith and change our lives. Now to look at that, I want to I take you to what I think is a very awkward interaction that Jesus has with his closest followers. And it's recorded for us. There are four writers that wrote uh, about Jesus' life and what he did and said. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's recorded in several of them. But I want to point you to Mark chapter 10. And we're going to look at a conversation really one of my favorite. If you like awkward, I think this is one of the best passages in the, in the New Testament of this, uh, just a snapshot of this moment, this conversation that Jesus has with his closest followers where he's saying one thing and they're not quite getting it. And it kind of lands in this concept of servanthood because I, I believe the idea of servanthood is really baked into Christianity from the beginning. And we see it here. Mark chapter 10, we're going to start with verse 32. And it'll give us, Mark's going to give us some context of where this conversation is happening. It says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus is walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, 
He began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. All right. All the Jews in Israel in the first century would go to Jerusalem several times a year for different festivals. It was part of their faith. They'd make this sort of pilgrimage. And it says going up to Jerusalem, up meaning Jerusalem's actually up on a hill. So you, wherever you are in Israel, you're going up to Jerusalem. So they're going up to Jerusalem. There's crowds that are following Jesus because of that he healed people because of the things he said. And it says some people are like terrified of things he says and, and how he teaches. There's some people sort of following at a distance, but they're, they're like scared but attracted, you know? They're like, ooh, this is interesting, but I'm a, I'm a little scared of him, you know, or whatever. And, and, and so the, Jesus' closest 12 disciples, these guys are walking with him as well. And Jesus pulls them aside and he says to them, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem for Passover. And they've done that multiple times in their life. Every year they've gone to Jerusalem at this time of year. We're going up to Jerusalem for Passover. When we get here, let me tell you how it's going to go down. We've gone up there before and, you know, whatever. But this time, when we go up there, me, the Son of Man, I'm going to be uh, flogged and mocked and spit upon, and then I'm going to be crucified, and then three days later, I'm going to come back from the dead. Okay. Now, put yourself in the disciples' position right now. Imagine you are one of Jesus' closest followers, and you hear him say that to you. How do you feel? What would you say? What would you say to him when he tells you that news? That's not good news. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to get, you know, beaten and mocked and, and I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. You don't even know what the rise again thing means. You're like, ah, oh, that's weird. But, but he just said he's going to get publicly humiliated and killed. If I'm one of his followers, I'm going to be like, well, no, uh not on my watch, bro. Like, I got your back. I'll get a sword. If anyone tries to roll up in you, we'll just, we'll like hold hands around you. And we'll have swords. And if anybody tries to get near you, we'll, we'll just take them out. Like, we'll hire some bodyguards. We'll do something. Like, you don't have to go through this. And, and why are you saying this? And how do you know? And like, there's so many things about it that are uncomfortable. And, and, and really, if you're his follower, you don't want to see this end. You don't want to see him die like this. He's talking about dying and being publicly humiliated. Any of us would be like, that's not how it's going to go down. I'm, I'm with you, man. Don't worry. And Right? Wouldn't you feel that way? That's, that's probably a normal reaction to that situation. The reaction you probably wouldn't have to that situation is the reaction the disciples actually have to the situation. Listen to what they say. The next verse, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. All right, this is just inappropriate. <laughs> There, he just said, I'm going to be flogged and spit upon and mocked and killed, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. And they're like, James and John, two of the 12, they're like, yeah, yeah, cool. Um, hey, by the way, none of that death stuff, could you do us a favor? And just like, what? What do you want me to do for you? Yeah, when you're like king, can we be like prince one and prince two? Can we like, you're going to be like on the top of the, the hierarchy. You're going to rule. You're going to be on the throne. Can we be like right there next to you as like the second in charge of like the kingdom? Don't you think that's an inappropriate question to say to a person who just told you how they're going to be slaughtered? I think it's awkward. It's super awkward. And they, and they just roll with it. And before we like throw rocks at these guys like, man, they really didn't get it. They're dummies. I just got to say, James and John are my people. These are my people who misread the room. 
I have misread the room before. I've been like, hey, what about, and like said the wrong thing. Has anyone else done this? Has anyone been in that moment where you're like, uh, this has happened. Oh, I, why did I, I've been kicked under the table by my wife before. Like I, I have said the thing like, oh, that can't get that toothpaste back in the tube. Like I wish I could take that back, but I just said it, just put it out there. You know, like these are my people. These are the people who say the wrong thing in the moment, and they do, and they just come out with, and, and, and what are they thinking about? They're not thinking about, oh, you're going to die. They're thinking about how much power can I get? How can I be in charge? How can I be in control? Right? And so they say that to him, and listen to his response. Verse 36, and he's, uh, I'm sorry, verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I, with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus says to them, hey, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Now, that's not about a cup or a drinking. That is about suffering. It, it is a, a reference to a, an old idea that they would have in Judaism. Um, 700 plus years before Jesus says this, one of God's prophets, a guy named Isaiah, speaks. And Isaiah speaks the word of God to the people. And listen to what he says in Isaiah 51 to get some background on this cup idea. Isaiah 51 says this, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. This idea of the cup is a reference to pain, and it's a reference to God's wrath, and it's a reference to suffering. And even when he says baptism, he's not talking about being immersed in water like we do here at this church and like Christians have done for millennia. He's not talking about getting immersed into water. He's saying getting immersed into suffering. And so he says to them, can you guys suffer like I'm, like I'm about to suffer? Like you want to be, be a thing? You want to be a big deal? How about you suffer under God's wrath? We'll get to the God's wrath thing later. Hold off on that. How about you suffer for a moment with me and... and, and and can you handle that? And, and they go, yeah, we can do that. Again, I, I don't think their head's quite in the right place. Because if you knew what Jesus was really saying, you wouldn't quickly be like, oh, yeah, I can totally. I mean, he just said, I'm going to be flogged, mocked, spit upon, crucified. He's like, can you handle the suffering? Oh, yeah, sure, we got this. We'll limber up. I'll do some stretches. I, like, what do they think they're walking into? He's talking about some significant pain, and they're like, we're able, and he's like, yeah, it, it's coming for you too one day, he tells them. Um, but I'm not gonna, you're not going to sit at my right and my left. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not what's going to happen. In fact, Mark points this out, and everyone else, the next time in the Bible that someone is listed as being at Jesus' right and his left is when he's on the cross. When he's suffering on the cross, there's, there's thieves on his right and on his left, and that's intentional. So these guys are like, yeah, uh, we, we can do that. And Jesus was like, oh, okay, well, you, you will. That's coming for you, but I'm not going to have you like sitting my right and my left as ruling over something like that. And then in verse 41, uh, listen to what the other disciples said. And when the 10 heard it, the other 10 guys, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, I totally get that. They're sitting there going like, who are these clowns to ask Jesus to be like, 
you know, rulers 1A and 1B in his kingdom. Like, we've been here since the beginning too. Like, nah, that's not fair. Like, we've been in this whole thing. You know, we know Jesus just as well as you guys do. How come you, you know, why are you even asking? Like, you could imagine how that went in, in the group. And, and it's a fair point they're making. It's just that the fair point they're making is actually missing the point of the whole thing. And Jesus is like, all right, let me, let me deal with this. And listen to what he says to them, verse 43. And 42, and Jesus called to them, to, to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So he's, first of all, he says, look, guys, you know how power works. You're asking to be in a position of power. You know how this goes. You're, you know how the Gentiles rule. You know how the Roman Empire rules. There are governors. There's a king. There's people you bow down to. There's people with money who, there's people who, the haves and the have-nots, the people who have their boot on you, and there are the people that you're, you're, you're suffering under. There's the oppressors and the oppressed. You know the power structure of the world. And what he's saying to them, he could easily say to us, because it's completely true in 21st century in the Western world. In America today, you still know and I know who's got power, who doesn't, who makes the power list in Richmond that Style publishes every year. You know, there's the, you know who's got it and who doesn't. You know who's in charge and who isn't. You know what the hierarchy looks like. You know what the org chart looks like in business, in government. We understand that, right? And he says, you know how that works? And the disciples are sort of falling into his, his trap here. He's saying for them, they're like, yeah, yeah, like we know. Yeah, that's how it goes, right? We just want to get some of that, you know? And then, and then listen to what he says in verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hey, you know how our culture grabs power? And, and makes it, uh, these people are in charge, and then, you know, and they have this whole system. Not so with you. That's not what we're going to do. The, the, it's going to look completely different in my kingdom. If you want to be powerful, if you want to be something, you're going to need to be a servant, a slave to others. You need to serve people and, and, and help them. Our calling as followers of Jesus is to serve others. Jesus says it's his purpose. He said, even the Son of Man, even myself, I did not come to, to be served, but to serve. And he says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We'll come back to that. So there's two major implications about this, I, about this thing. Number one, it's not about you. This is one thing I want you to kind of go away with today. Number one is it's, it's not about you. The most popular best-selling book in the Christian publishing world in the last 50 years. Does anyone know the name of that book? Anyone? Someone knew it first. Does anyone have a guess what's the most popular book sold? Not the Bible, but yes, someone said it over here. The Purpose Driven Life it was written by a, guy, a pastor out in California named Rick Warren back in the early 90s. And um, it's just an interesting book. And, and Rick Warren starts the book out with these words. It's not about you. It's not about you. That's, that's the first thing he wants you to know about purpose, about meaning, about life, about where this is all going. It's not actually 
about you, and that is hard for us to hear, especially in January. Man, in January, it's about me. It's my goals. It's my career. It's my health. It's my fitness. It's my faith. It's my, it's my, 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 my family. What are we doing here? Like, I am making a plan for 2018. We're going to crush it, and that's fine. I, I would, I think being goal-oriented is better than not being goal-oriented, but somewhere in there, we have to recognize, oh, wait, it's actually not about me. My life it's not about my life. That's discipleship, Christianity 101. We start in a place of, hey, it's actually not all about me. It's about knowing him and making him known. This is actually the, the mission of our church. The mission of every church that follows Jesus is really the same. The mission of the church is like we're disciples who make disciples wherever we go. We are called to go into all the world and make disciples and baptize people and help them follow Jesus. Like that's, that's what all churches should be doing. Now each church is going to express that in a different way. At our church, what we say is uh, change lives, committed leaders, and community impact. And those things have been in place since actually week two of Area 10, nine years ago. Came, kind of landed on those things. Change lives, committed leaders, community impact. That's what we want to see happen here in the city of Richmond. We want to see lives change. Now, change lives sounds like it's about you, right? Oh, my life has been changed. But the reality is the transformation process that happens there is, is you saying, it's actually not about me. Following God, I'm going to get baptized into him. I'm going to give my life to him because it's about him. That's where the life change starts. Uh, it's when you have this encounter with God and realize that he's He's in charge, and, and, and that means um, I don't have to be in power, I don't have to rule, I don't have to get my way. Uh, that's, that's part of the transformation process that God does in us. The, the goal of following Jesus, and this should freak you out, but the goal of following Jesus is to actually lose control of your life. Now, some of you are like, I don't need to follow Jesus for that, I've already lost control. Like, I'm doing very well, at, finally, you said something I'm good at right here. No, but I mean losing your grasping on your life and saying, I'm going to put my life into your hands, Jesus. Wherever that takes me, God, I'm going to follow after you, and I'm going to live a life that reflects you and, and serves you and honors you. That's the goal, is to lose, lose the, the grip on it yourself and give it to, to him. So change lives, committed leaders. We want to see leaders who are raised up all over this community to serve Richmond, to serve in this church, in this city. Um, and committed leaders is, hey, look, a, a spiritual committed leader is this person is following Jesus and they're bringing other people along with them. That's what a leader is, right? There's people following you. So we want to see more and more leaders raised up in this church who are following Jesus and bringing other people along with them. That means in the community, leading small groups, leading an area of 10 kids, leading with teenagers, leading, uh, leading service projects, leading in all of these different ways within the church, but also in the city, there are uh, spiritual leaders from this church that are starting things that are serving so well all over the community, and we want to help them and equip them to uh, grow in their faith so that they can leverage that for the sake of other people and to, to, to use their faith to serve other people. So change lives, committed leaders, and, and community impact. Um, I, 
I think we know what that means, right? Like we're serving our city and making it a better place to be. We're seeking the shalom, the peace of this city and, and trying to invest in it and grow. We're doing that globally as well. We're doing a lot of work in, in Vietnam. Um, and we do all of this because it's not about us, because we're called to be servants. This is the path of Jesus, is to, to walk this, this path of servanthood. So number one, it's not about us. Uh, so here's an idea. What if, what if you invested in serving other people in 2018 in a way that maybe you haven't before? What if you said, I'm going to step up and be a mentor in, in the public school. I'm going to serve our schools that way. I'm going to invest in, in foster care and, and serve kids there. I'm going to uh, teach a kid's class. We have people teaching right now in Area 10 Kids, and they are teaching your children um, about God. They're not doing free babysitting. They are investing in lives down there, and they're helping kids know Jesus in an age-appropriate way. Um, and, and man, I tell you, people step into that role, and they say, all right, I'll, I'll teach a third through fifth grade class with the kids on Sunday. And it's terrifying because you're like, I don't know if I know enough. And what if a kid asks me a question that I don't know the answer to and all that? Like, any of you who are parents should know kids will ask you questions you don't know the answer to. Like, why is water wet and stuff like that? I mean, but it's okay. Uh, you, can, you can still do it. And, and my experience has been when you, when, you are, when you have to teach, you grow more than anyone because you're diving into the material and, and, and having to learn it to invest in, and pour it out into other people. Um, and I believe there's a huge return on those investments when you invest with kids, when you invest in a small group and lead that here, when you're serving in the community. There's a huge return on those investments. I mean, there's things we regret, right? There's investments you make you regret. There's money you spent on a shirt that didn't look that good. There's money you spent on a car that actually turned out to be terrible. There's money you dropped into, into a mutual fund stock and it went poorly. Like, there, there are those things, right? But I don't think you regret the investment you make in, in relationship and in people and in service. Like, there's nobody in the room right now going, man, packaging up those meals last weekend was a waste of time. Sheesh, why did I do that? Like, you're not saying that right now. You're not thinking that was a waste of your life. I don't think like, oh, I met with somebody for coffee who was going through a hard time and I poured out some of my time and whatever wisdom God has given me, I tried to give it to them and just put it out there for them. I, I don't think, man, what a waste. There's no return on that. It was terrible. Like, okay, people don't always listen to you when you invest in them, but you're there to listen and to, to be consistent and to be a, a shoulder to cry on or someone to listen to. Like, that's a good thing. That's a good investment. That is being a servant of other people. Um, and, and, and I think we know that something just feels right about that. When we declare, not with just our words and actions, we're not just saying like, oh, thoughts and prayers, and then we don't really do anything. But when we are plugged in and serving other people, something about that just feels right to us. We go, yeah, I am sp supposed to do this. Like, this is a good thing. So number one, it's not about us. But number two, an important idea here is this. The cross changes us from self-servants to selfless servants cross changes us from self-service, people who are living for ourselves, to selfless service, people who are living for um, others. Now, Jesus talks about this cup of suffering, and what he's talking about is his death that he's going to experience on the cross that he just told his disciples about. He's going to go through an immense pain, and it's crucial for us to understand the, the, the whys and the hows of that. You see, God has anger towards sin. 
Now, I know talking about the anger or wrath, like we talked about in Isaiah, the anger or wrath of God is a super unpopular topic in America in the 21st century. We're a, like everybody love everybody kind of place. We are like an Oprah culture, right? We're like, you get a pony and you get, like everyone loves, we just, great. And so the idea that God is love, we like that too. God is wrathful and angry, don't like that so much. Let's not talk about that. Let's, that's your weird uncle that you wanted to like put him over there. Like we don't talk about him at family gatherings. Like that's what we do with God. And here's the reality. We need to understand God is angry about some things, and there is such a thing as wrath. It's a real thing. And it actually, if you think it through, it makes sense. Let's say you're an artist, and let's say you spend days painting something beautiful, and you've poured energy into it, and you make this beautiful canvas, and you do this thing. And somebody comes in, and they punch a hole through your painting. Are you angry? Yes. Is it justified? I think so. Um, is there an offense that has been committed there? Absolutely. Is somebody going to have to pay for that? Yes. All of that is true. Now, if you're God and you look at us and you look at us like he makes this painting, he makes this beautiful thing of, our crea- of the creation and then we trash it, well, I think there's some justification there to say, why are you trashing what I've made? If, if we are his children and what we do to one another is cheat on one another and, get, and, and just tear each other down and just... The horrible ways people, not even, you could go to murder and all of the really dark stuff, but all of the different ways that we, that we hurt one another. And we are God's children. And he looks down on that and goes, what are you doing to my kid? You over there. Yeah, you. What did you do to her? What did you do to him? Is there anger there? I think any parent would understand. You're angry. If someone hurts your kid, you're angry about it. And it's justified. It's not like, well, you have no right to be angry. You should just be loving when someone hurts your kid. No, like there's some justified anger there. And God, out of his love, does not punish us for all of that. He punishes Jesus on the cross. Jesus goes to the cross out of love. He takes, he drinks that cup of suffering, the wrath of God. He drinks that so that you and I don't have to. And praise God. I mean, that's why, that's why we're here. That's what we celebrate as a church, that Jesus did that for us um, and, 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 and dealt with that whole situation. And, and Jesus says, hey, I didn't come to be served but to serve, so we should be servants. And he said, and I came to give my life as a ransom for many. When I hear the word ransom, I don't know what you think of. I think of Mel Gibson. Give me back my son uh, in his movie, right? And, and uh, ransom, the idea, we, we know that word. It, it basically means r- ransom is the price you pay to, to liberate someone, to make, set someone free. So someone kidnaps your son or whatever, you pay this money to ransom, pay the ransom, and you, you get to be uh, set free. And that is the word that is used to describe what Christ does for us on the cross. He liberates us because we were hostages. We were, um, before we came to Jesus, we were not free people. And when we get baptized into Christ, we give our life to him, our freedom begins. It's not always overnight. It's not always quick. But our freedom, we sort of progressively start to become more free, and he loosens the chains from us. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans. He talks about how we're, when we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ's death. And we, when we are immersed in water, we come out of that water as a new person. We raise, rise again like the old person is gone and a new person is born. And then he says this in Romans chapter 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, all that stuff we've done, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
This is what Christ does for us on the cross. He sets us free so that we're no longer slaves. We sang it this morning about bondage, freedom from bondage. I'm no longer a slave to fear. We, we sang that. And that's what, this is, that's what this song is talking about. Now, a modern person would say, and maybe you feel this way right now, you're like, dude, I'm totally free. I don't even need to know Jesus. I was free when I walked in here. I am I'm in the land of the free, the home of the brave. Like, I don't need, I'm not enslaved to anything. But is that really true? See, the person who doesn't know they're enslaved is probably the most enslaved person of all. Like, if I, if I went out on the street and grabbed you and tied you up and, like, put you in my basement, you would know that you're in bondage. You would know that, like, oh, man, I'm, I've been captured. I'm here. But if I hit you over the head and then tied you up and put you in my basement and you just woke up down there, you don't even know what's going on. You don't even know how enslaved you are. You don't even know what level of bondage you're in. There might be a better example I could have thought of than your preacher hitting you and putting you. I don't even own a basement, so it's not a real example. I'm just saying, I'm just saying uh, there's, there's levels of bondage where we're aware that we're enslaved, and then there's levels where we're like not even aware of how enslaved we are. And so many of us can fall into the trap of being enslaved to approval addiction, of being enslaved in a codependent relationship, of being enslaved to alcohol or pornography or drugs. or like There's so many things that get our hooks in us. There's so many things that the scripture calls idols. Some of them can even be good things that we allow to become the ultimate things. And we think we own them and we think we have control over them, our finances, our relationships, whatever. We think we own these things, but in reality, they own us and we're not free. And the journey to, it's not about me, the journey of following Christ, I'm getting baptized, I'm following after him, becoming a servant, is voluntary servanthood. There's, there's actually freedom in that, of, of knowing him and following after him, and, and not living uh, in, in bondage. The, the, the bondage that we're in looks different for each person, but it's still bondage nonetheless. And Jesus comes along and loosens the chains around our neck. And it's important he sets us free so that we can stop serving ourselves and instead serve others. C.S. Lewis says that humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's just thinking of ourselves less. And I think that's really tied up into this idea of servanthood. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying go home and think you're terrible. I'm saying just go home and stop thinking about you all the time and me. And believe me, I'm working on this in my life too. Uh, I'm saying let's move from a posture, uh, a gesture of servanthood, oh, I did this one thing that one time and it helped people, to a posture of servanthood in 2018. No, this is just flows out of my life. This is what I do. I'm always looking for ways to serve my friends, my family, my girlfriend, my, my coworkers, my, my classmates. I'm always looking for a way to serve other people. Make that be the posture. And if you do that, there's a return on that investment. It will change you and, and you'll grow. I want to show you one story from someone at our church, Sarah, and I think she's representative of a lot of people at this church who, uh, who serve. Listen to her story uh, and, and what, how servanthood and, and serving here has changed her. Since I've been a partner at Area 10, I've served both with the church and outside of the church, just in the community. A couple of examples are leading small group, running pro presenters, so the slides that you're seeing on the screen right now, and volunteering at Parkwood, volunteering at Caritas, and serving with Hands Up Ministry. I look at the Bible to kind of explain why I'm compelled to serve, and my go-to verse there is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14-15. For the love of Christ compels us. 
If one died for all, then all died, and he died for all that, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. And I also, along with that, look at um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, um, where we're called to be part of the body. Um, we're all part of the body, and through that, um, we are called to suffer when others suffer and rejoice when others rejoice. And um, so I think if there's people in need in my community that I'm called to serve them and, and be with them in that need and love on them through that. And, um, and so that's why I serve. The biggest cost I think is time. And I've heard people in the past say that that's like one of our assets that we just can't get back. But every time it's absolutely worth it. And I think that I'm rewarded tenfold by the time that I give up to serve others. The biggest reward is human connection and relationship whether it's ongoing relationships, like some of the relationships I have with the ladies in my small group, and even the relationships that we got to build through serving at Parkwood. So I think just human connection and interaction and the ways that you can see God through other people are the biggest rewards that I get from serving. I think serving has challenged me most by just putting me in situations that make me uncomfortable. Like stepping up to lead small group, you get worried like if you'll know the answer or if you'll be able to really keep conversation going or be able to create an environment where people make connections with each other. And God uses me despite any of those concerns. Um, and He's the one doing all the work. I just have to say yes. Um, and, and so I think that there's a lot of times where when you say yes to a commitment, there's an uncomfort level there. And if you're just willing to trust God, that He'll be with you through that and in that, that you'll, you'll really see the benefits of that. Because I think when you serve, you really see God at work around you. And I think one of the like craziest things is just to see Him at work in you and using you. Because um, I know for me, like I can read stories in the Bible about how He uses broken people. And I'm like, man, that's really cool. He's using broken people time and time again. And I'm like, oh, I'm a broken person and He's using me too. And so I think it's just powerful to see Him at work through you. There are a lot of examples in, of people in this church who serve inside and outside the church in the community, and, and, and I just think it's incredible, and, and I love hearing the stories of, of how things are going. And, um, I love what Sarah said about relationships, you know, like, like some of the return on the investment you get is you build some relationships, and, and I think that's a, a key thing for us, that, that, we, that we serve with others and, and get into relationships and, and stretch and, and grow. Um, I really believe that if you serve, that, that God will stretch your faith and, and grow you and, and take you to a deeper level. I got the chance to hear uh, Pastor Andy Stanley a couple months ago at a conference down in Charlotte, and uh, he said this thing, and I about fell out of my chair when he said it. Uh, he, he, said, he said people come up to him and say, like, hey, I want something deeper, and he said, his response was, I always tell him, uh, if you want something deeper, try being a foster parent. And I was like, oh, that's such a good answer. Like, what, you know, and I was like, because I, I believe like there's something, there's something to that. Do the thing, get into relationship, and it's going to stretch and grow you and take you deeper in a way that you, you didn't even expect. And I think that's true of foster care. I think it's true of, of, of quite a few things, that if we, if we put ourselves out there and take a risk, what we end up doing, whether it's teaching a class or serving or leading a small group or, or foster care or serving in the community, when we do these things, it teaches us to stop being so self-sufficient and we become more God-dependent and, uh, and, and we grow 
that way. And I'm so thankful for the people who serve here. Area 10 kids, there's people serving right now. If they don't do what they're doing, I can't do what I'm doing. I got a job here too, and we're all working together. There's people who caffeinated you on the way in. And if they don't do what they're doing, you're all asleep right now. And that's, no, that's not good. Like, that's not helpful, right? Like, no, but they, coffee brings connection. You can talk and meet people, and that's a good thing. There's people who greeted you on the way in, and they need to do what they're doing so that you come here, connect, and meet someone, and, and someone says hi to you. Um, there's people who serve all throughout this community that are praying for, serving each other um, in homes, uh, lifting each other up. There's, there's people having coffee and listening to each other's pain and walking through in confession, and all of these things going on in the community, and I'm so thankful for those who serve and who are, who are doing it. And let me just challenge you all, jump in. Make 2018 a year of servanthood that we're, we're, we're all in on this. Not that you're attending and watching other people do it, but that you're there and you're doing it with them. That you're saying, hey, let's hold hands together and, and serve the body here and, then ser- and also serve the community and, and this city. If you've been on the sidelines, I, I really pray that this is the year that you're, that you're all in. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this community and, and how they serve and how I know so many people, so many stories like Sarah's of people who, who give and give, um, and, and in doing so, they're following in the way of Christ. Um, God, I pray that we never get hung up on power or make this about control, um, but that we, uh, we realize that um, our call is to really pour ourselves out for others, and I pray this community does that well. Uh, in Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen.